Well, as you look down at your text this morning, and you look at verse 1, and you look at verse 7, basically what you see there are what we might call brackets. Verse 1, you have this statement that says, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, drop down to verse 7, you see virtually the same thing. The Word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So the fact that we have reference here in both ends of our text, the idea of the disciples increasing indicates that we have something like brackets around our text. But they're not just brackets. There's not just mere repetition here. It's basically A, what's more B? Because you come into verse 1, you see the testimony of an increasing and a multiplying and gospel expanding church. And then you come into verse 7 and you read of an increasing and multiplying and turbocharged growth kind of Christian church. Because it's not just that they're increasing. It says they're increasing greatly. And it's interesting to note there that that word for greatly is arithmos. The word we get arithmetic from. In other words, it's signaling arithmetic growth. This is multiplication at a high number. It is intense growth. But the fact that this language sort of forms a a bracket around our text would indicate to us that whatever is in between these two statements of the increasing, growing, multiplying nature of the church in Jerusalem accounts for not just the increasing growth, but as you come into verse 7, the turbocharged growth. And what it is that's in the middle of those brackets, of course, is, as we've read here, the institution of the diaconate. As Luke unfolds the story of the continuing expansion of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom of God, particularly in the city of Jerusalem, before it begins to spread out into Gentile lands, he links the institution of the diaconate to the story of the spreading of the word of God. And by doing that, we learn two things from our text this morning. Number one, the institution of the diaconate. Number two, the nature of the diaconate. And as we take up now this second aspect of our series on officers and offices, we move now to the diaconate. And we want to think, first of all, as we work our way into this series, we want to learn about the institution and the nature of this great ministry of mercy. So we begin this morning with two parts, the apostolic institution of the diaconate and the missional purpose of the diaconate. I would have us note here as we think about the apostolic institution of the diaconate that we have a twofold deficit in our text. We have a twofold ministry deficit. And that's important to the understanding of the point here about the apostolic institution of the office of deacon. It may be one way to, to work our, our, our understanding into what's going on in the text is to tie it to the context. And you see here at the outset of verse 1, we, we have an important contextual indicator. It says, now at this time. Well, immediately we would want to ask ourselves, at what time? What is it about the time that is so important to Luke that, that he pauses here before he, he jumps into the narrative of the story of the institution of the diaconate, that he would pause to say, it was at this time, a certain time. 
And there's a couple of things that are noteworthy about the time in which the diaconate was instituted. And the first thing that is noteworthy about the time in which the diaconate was instituted is that it was a time of persecution. It was a time of persecution. If you were to look back over into chapter 5, you would notice that the disciples and the apostles particularly have gone through a fresh instance of persecution. We find there that the apostles were jailed by the Sanhedrin. We find there that they were summoned to court by the Sanhedrin. We find there that they were threatened by the Sanhedrin to not speak in the name of Christ. They were forbidden to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem. And then we were informed there that they were flogged by the Sanhedrin. So it's a time of persecution for the church. It is one of those gut check moments in the history of the church where you might say, will it continue? Will it survive? Will it grow? Will it expand? Will the people of God be faithful? And the answer is, of course, yes, they will. Because the other component aspect to the context of our text that's involved in the language of now at this time in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that the people of God responded. They responded to the persecution with faithfulness. Look at verse 42. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. You see here, in, in spite of the terrible opposition and the pain and the persecution, what we see here is that the church is persevering in ministry. And they're doing so with great vigor. Every single day they were meeting together as the people of God and preaching and teaching and enjoying spiritual exercises together. Now that accounts for what you read in verse 1. Uh, the disciples were increasing. You see, it's precisely because the church wasn't sidetracked. It's precisely because of the faithfulness of the people of God to the worship of the church and the building up of the church and the praying for the church and, and the preaching of the gospel that, that the church continued to increase and to grow in number. And it's that growth which really sets up the context now for this first deficit that we find. There's a ministry deficit in our text. And that deficit is a diaconal deficit. It is a diaconal deficit. And you can see it in verse 1 in the testimony about the complaint. Notice here it says, A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. So in the midst of a season of this great multiplication and growth in the life of the church, we've got all kinds of, of people now streaming into the, to the church and to the people of God. And the result was there was a lack of ministry. There's a lack of ministry. And the word here that signals trouble is this very awful word, complaint. Complaint. Because it's the very same Greek word that is associated with the people of God in the wilderness. Murmur. The great problem of the people of God in the wilderness is every time you turn around you read about them, they're murmuring. They're murmuring about the manna. They're murmuring about garlics and garlic and onions and leeks. They're murmuring about living in tents. They're murmuring about a lack of water. They're murmuring at Moses. They're murmuring at Aaron. They're murmuring constantly. 
And it is a word that doesn't just mean to, to be critical, but it speaks of a deep down spiritual problem. And that's exactly what you have here. That flavor of that spiritual problem is involved in this word complaint. And we have two different sets of people who are engaged in it. We have Greek-speaking Jews and we have Hebrew-speaking Jews. And the issue here is the widows. Now, one of the things that's interesting about uh, this era in, in history is that that Jews had begun to be spread across the whole Roman Empire. It's called the Diaspora. In fact, it had been happening as far back as, as the dispersion to Babylon and maybe just a bit uh, after that or before. But you see, as, as the Roman Empire expanded, so did this dispersion of the Jews away from the land of Palestine. And so the reason why you have Greek-speaking Jews in Palestine is it used to be... Well, one of the goals of those people who were dispersed to, to live out their golden years, as we might say, back in Jerusalem. And so uh, people in their retirement years uh, would come back and they would settle in the city. In fact, estimates are that about 10 to 20 percent of the overall population of the city of Jerusalem at this time would have been Greek-speaking Jews of the dispersion who came back for retirement to live in the community of, of Jerusalem to be close to the temple and to be close to that Jewish culture and context. But it's clear that um, even though they shared this common religious heritage, that there were serious divisions among them. And those divisions were the result of where they'd been living. Uh, they were Greek-speaking. That means they came from another culture. They had a different background, different tastes and interests and, and mannerisms. And what that did is even though they shared the same exact faith, it led them to have a different approach to life and a different way of relating to one another. In fact, what it caused really was segregation in the church between people who had the exact same um, spiritual heritage. And the ugliness of it is that those cultural divides and conflicts uh, well, they come into the church now because as these Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistic Jews get saved and as the, as the Hebrew Jews in Jerusalem get saved and start coming into the church, they brought their culture with them. They brought their divisions with them. They brought divisiveness with them. And it would seem here that there was a sort of bias taking place in the distribution of the daily need to the widows. Now, that's a serious problem because in the reading of the Old Testament, it's very plain that God had a special place in his heart for the widow and for the orphan and for those who were legitimately destitute financially. So under the Old Testament, the widow was a, a very special category of concern. And the people of God were obligated to make provision for the widow. In fact, you can see that same concern spill over into the New Testament, into the application of the idea of bringing um, a truly destitute widow onto the rolls of the church so that she was provided for. But it's not just that they were widowed that seems to be a problem here. What seems to be a problem is there is a financial breakdown in that widow's life. And, and that breakdown may have come from uh, an, an unforeseen loss of financial resources. 
Because if you go back and you study the marital contracts of the day, there had to be money set aside and held in trust in the event that, um, that the husband died first, there would be plenty of money left over for that widow to live on. So whether it was uh, unforeseen providential circumstances or, or a lack of preparation or enforcement of the marital contracts, what you end up having here is you have these Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jewish widows who, uh, because their husbands have passed and because of providential difficulties, have come into the hardest times financially you can imagine, and they are utterly destitute. And the problem is, when the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians saw it, well, they overlooked them. You see, we have problems of race in the culture of the church in Jerusalem. And there's a deficit then. There is a ministry deficit because in the midst of the good news of the church increasing and multiplying, there are people who are being left out. There are people who are being discriminated against. And so complaint arises. That's one level of ministry deficit. There's another level of ministry deficit here too. And you find that in verse 2. We see here having the testimony of Luke about the nature of the conflict in verse 1. So, see, we're, we're, we're seeing here that there is an apostolic response to the problem. So, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Well, having heard of the complaint, having heard the murmuring of the people of God, particularly the, the Jews, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews complaining about them, their mistreatment, what do the apostles do? Well, they take control of the situation and they gather the people of God in assembly. And they respond to the problem. And the first thing that they say is, it's not desirable. It's not desirable. In other words, it's not right for them to do something. And here it's spelled that the thing that is undesirable is that they would neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now I want you to notice here how they have categorized this administration to uh, the destitute widows. They call it serving tables. It's it's the verb of, it's the word diakon, uh, deacon turned into a verb, diakonane. It means to wait tables or to serve tables. And the apostles here are classifying what does this activity mean. This administration to the destitute is called deaconing, if you will, serving tables. And they're drawing a sharp red line between kinds of ministry. There is ministry of word and there's ministry of waiting tables. And the thing that they're saying here, it's not desirable. It's not desirable that we should neglect this ministry of the Word of God in order, on the other hand, to wait tables. But the very way that this is swept out by the apostles indicates to us that's precisely what's happening. They have been neglecting the ministry of the Word. And that strikes us a little bit funny, maybe, because of the summary statement of verse 52, that they kept right on teaching and preaching. You wonder how much more they could do than every day. But, but the reality is this is the testimony of the apostles, and they're giving every indication that there is something, there is a deficit in the ministry of the Word because they're spending time on the ministry 
of mercy. They've become distracted. It tells us something about priorities and categories and differences within the church. And here is one that that Christ by His institution has arranged different functions and ministry within the church. There is the ministry of the Word, there is the ministry of rule, and there is the ministry of mercy. You see, this is all of Christ to His church. This is what Christ is. Christ gives Himself in the Word, Christ gives Himself in shepherding, and Christ gives Himself in mercy. But here's the thing, He didn't, Uh, create just one office for this. He created three functions for it. The ministry of the word, the ministry of rule, and the ministry of mercy. And the reason one is so that it would be done orderly fashion, and two would be done according to gifting and ability. But there would be order in the ministry in the church, in Christ's administration of himself, in the fullness of his mercies. To his people. And so the apostles put their finger exactly on the the problem. It's just not right. It's not right that any one of these ministries be neglected. It's not right the ministry of the word should be neglected. It's not right the ministry of shepherding should be neglected. And it's not right that the ministry of mercy should be neglected. And so they, um, they, they label. They describe, uh, they interpret all of this correctly. And so we have the deficit, the deficit in the ministry of mercy and the deficit in the ministry of the word. And so that all leads to what? Solution. That leads to solution. We have the apostolic solution as we read on in the language of the apostles into verse 3. Therefore, you know? That therefore is important because it looks right back on the problem. It's not right for us to neglect the word in order to serve tables. So therefore, we're going to do something about it. And they prescribe here diaconal ministry. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And the first thing that I want us to note here is that this is an official ministry. The language of put in charge of is a word of authority. You see, there is some debate in in the interpretation of this text as whether this is really the institution of the diaconate. There's a whole group of people who say that these are just a very unique set of, of servants for a unique and a particular situation. And so they would say, take this off the table and we don't know how the diaconate got in the church. Well, it's kind of funny that you would do that because this is just fine. It says here, they, they said, put them in charge. In other words, this is the apostles under Christ saying, we see a problem and it is time to make sure that we have organized the ministry of Christ in a way that is glorifying to him and gets the job done. And so what they've done is they've made a carve out within the structure of church government and they're saying there are people who must be designated for this ministry and and notice how specific they get here with it we may put in charge of this task well you you need to to pull that apart a second because that word uh, task is need okay for this need it's not a good translation here to say task It's a need because what that word need does is it looks right back into verse 1 and to the problem 
of the lack of administration of mercy. That's the need. People are being neglected. People are needing Christ's help, Christ's hand, in a merciful and practical way. That is the need. And that's in every congregation. And so uh, they, they double down on, on the specificity of it by saying this need. Not just any need, but this need. This need of serving people who are destitute and miserable and helpless. Well, what is it? It's this ministry of serving tables as the apostles identify it in verse 2. This is then the institution of the mercy ministry. Just so that we're very clear that the nature of this ministry is different than the word ministry. I I would just invite you to look into verse 4 where the apostles go on to double down on the line of division between them as ministers of the word and this new office of deacon. It says here, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice there's there's sharp contrast here between those who would be put in charge of this very task, this, this need of distributing to serving tables, to the administration of mercy to those who are in need. And there's this, there's this ministry of the word, and it's not the same ministry. Notice here that they said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is the same language of verse 2. It's not right for us to neglect the word of God. And what's the, the opposite of neglecting? Well, it's, it's devotion. They would devote themselves to this word here. And not just to the preaching of the word and the catechizing and, and teaching and the full range of of the ministry of the Word of God to to the people of God in terms of unfolding and expounding and and, uh, clarifying the whole counsel of God. They would do all of that, but then they also add to it what is an adjunct to this ministry, to prayer. To prayer. Now, Now, there are those who would look at this text and they would say, this is a key link term back to Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42, you have a a snapshot of of the life of the church at worship. And it says there that they were giving themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And there would be many who say that this word prayer here is referring to the official act of praying and worship, to, to pastoral prayers, to, to leading the congregation and in um, in prayers of invocation and pastoral prayers and, and the various kinds of prayers that would be suitable for uh, the, the worship of the church. And I think that's probably true. There, there would be, um, as an adjunct to their calling as ministers of the Word, they're to lead the worship of God. I could just make this point as an aside here. Um, I, I would regard it as a part of my pastoral office to lead the congregation in worship. There is a bit of a difference of opinion in the Presbyterian world where they say, well, since, uh, since elders are elders, uh, 
we, we ought not uh, press the, the, the distinction too far between teaching and ruling and, and that we should have elders leading the worship. But I've always been of the conviction, I'm not trying to, to speak divisively here against the practice of other congregations, but it's always been my personal opinion that because prayer here is appended to the preaching of the Word, and that it certainly does include this component of, of leading the congregation in public prayers, that it ought to be pastors leading the worship of God's people. The people whose calling it is specially and specifically to give themselves to the preaching of the Word of God are also to be the person who is leading the congregation in the prayers and in the worship of God's people. And I think it's very important that we, we keep that line of difference so that we understand who is responsible for what. And it seems the apostles are making that clear. There are lines of division in the offices of the church in terms of function and duty and responsibility. But I don't think that that's all. I don't think that exhausts this idea of what the apostles are speaking of when they say they will devote themselves to, to the word and to prayer. Because I also think this is about the private life of the pastor and his private prayers for the ministry of the Word of God. And by joining these things together, the apostles are saying that if, if a man is going to be called to the ministry of the Word and the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, he's going to need time to, to get into his closet and have time to, to pray for the ministry of the Word and to pray for the people of God and to pray for his own spiritual growth and grace and, and in maturity. So this is an essential uh, grouping here the apostles set forth. They will give themselves to, to two things because this ministry of the word is, um, is supplemented, strengthened, reinforced by what? Prayer. Now notice here the final thing about it, devotion. And I think this really ties it all together and makes that crystal clear, sharp, bright red line of contrast between the offices. Again, I just would make clear, I understand that Christ is whom is given in the ministry of the church. Christ gives himself in the preached word. He gives himself in the shepherding of the church. And he gives himself in the mercy of the church. It's all Christ. The substance is not different but the administration is, and the office is. And so they say, this is what we do. We devote ourselves. Now, uh, this is one of those words that is full of the, the greatest kind of strength and, and persistence and, and diligence. In other words, what, what is being said here is it's not a part-time job. It's not a part-time job to be a pastor where you, you can be a man who juggles five different hats, as we like to say. No, uh, the, the, the ministry of, of the Word, that office and calling and function in terms of the administration of Christ is worthy of singleness of devotion and focus. Calvin has a great quote here. They declare that the ministry of the word is so painful that it requireth a whole man. Neither will it allow him to be occupied about any other business. Remember here, when he says that it's so painful, he's not suggesting it's some sort of discomfort. It, it, it takes such great pains 
It takes such energy and resolve and focus and determination because remember, uh, the Apostle Paul places the charge upon Timothy and upon all ministers that, but, that the man of God is, is to be devoted to the ministry of the Word so he can cut a straight course in the Word. So he can proclaim it with accuracy and conviction and power. Well, that takes determination and that takes focus. That's precisely what the apostles say here. So they have a ministry deficit and one deficit led to another. The, the diaconal deficit ended up leading to a ministry of the word deficit. Before you know it, you have a disorder in the church. And when you have disorder in the church, you have this group complaining against this group. And all you begin to hear now is the murmurings of the people of God rather than their praise. That's what the church is there for. But we don't observe the order of Christ. We get disorder and we get disorder. Well, we get grumbling and we see a church that can't do the work of Christ. But one of the things I would say here by way of application is I just think about the distinctions we've made here as we thought through the apostolic institution of this office is, is God's great care for His church. God's great care for His church and it's expressed through the very language of the apostles that, that Christ would organize the ministry of His church and He would draw clear lines of distinction and clear lines of function and clear categories of ministry and of service. And to make it clear, these are not overlapping or mixed together. That there is a place for everything. And so this ministry of mercy is a distinct office and calling. It is not the eldership. It bothers me that many people in the Reformed tradition look at the office of deacon as the junior leagues. Well, let's see how they work as a deacon and then we'll try them out for eldership. But, but that's not how it works. Because the eldership is not the same set of callings and qualifications and, and gifting. There are some people that make great elders and they would be lousy as deacons. Lousy. There are some people who would be great deacons and they do their job very well as deacons, but they would be lousy as elders. And I think it just goes without saying that pastors are horrible at the other things because that's not their gifting. That's not their calling. And when you see a pastor try to wear all of the hats within the church and to fulfill all of its functions, you will see a dysfunctional church. I have seen pastors get so absorbed with the budget and the finances of the church that dollar bill signs are in their ears rather than Bible verses in their heart. And it causes a problem. Because that's not the calling of the pastor. For years in the ministry, I have refused to look at a single budget. Number one, because they're usually discouraging. But number two, because other people are called to that. I thank God for elders and deacons who've taken time to be a part of that and to leave me time to do other things that I'm called to do, which is not that. So we look at this and we see 
that Christ, as he governs his church through these apostles, is first of all setting up the church properly and orderly. There are distinct offices and officers, and here this ministry of mercy is this. The second thing that you see here in this is the orderliness of the separation to ministry here. Because notice here, the apostles are very clear about how this is to work out. They are as a congregation to gather together and to vote upon the qualified as they exercise spiritual discernment. And so the very process of of establishing the ministry of mercy in the church is one which bears the stamp of Christ's authority and of Christ's wisdom. I've probably shared this with you before many times. I'm just going to repeat it anyway. I can't remember, but I think I've shared it with you before. I, I was struck one time as I was... Uh, preaching a series on officers and offices a million years ago when I first began in the ministry and I just happened to be driving along listening to Christian radio to see what was being said and, and this, uh, this man was on there giving um, an exposition of officers and offices and he said, well, you know, I don't really like the idea of official ministry. He says, my idea, my philosophy of ministry is where you have Elling going on is where eldership is happening, where you have deacon going on is where you have the diaconate. We, we just have people doing things. He said, that's my philosophy of ministry. I don't see that as the apostolic philosophy of ministry. The apostles did not say, we'll do a little elling, maybe we'll do a little deacon, and what, what would you like? They are very emphatic. It's not right. They will focus on the ministry of the word and those who've been elected by the congregation and set apart to office will do the work of the diaconate. We should note the order that Christ has placed in his church. It's not by convention. The last thing I would have us note here is that those who would serve in this office are not those of a second class Ability or gifting or quality because we have the highest, uh, the highest set of qualities here, morally and spiritually, as they're set out in our text. Select from among you men of a good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Again, the diaconate is not for the junior leagues, it is the highest set of qualities and the highest set of moral standards, and the highest set of abilities. And so as we look at all of this uh, instruction by way of, of institution, implementation, we can clearly see Christ as the King ahead of the church. He's got His hand on His church, and, and He's building it, and He's shaping it, and He's organizing it so it's for good. The point of it was to what, people of God? It, it was to stabilize the church. They were fighting. They were grumbling. They were murmuring. They were being divided. And they, worst of all, were neglecting those whom Christ holds dear to His heart, and that is the destitute. So, we find the Christ's provision here in terms of of the formation of the diaconate. Let's turn now secondly to consider the purpose. And surely we'll spend maybe some time thinking about this a bit more. But I do think it's so important that 
uh, we think about the, the, the purpose of the diaconate when we think about it because it, in some ways it feels like the office that never really had much of an identity. It feels like you could almost set, you, you, could, you could say the diaconate's for almost anything sometimes. We, we know what an elder does, he rules. That's built into the word. Presbyteros, elder and they rule. Purpose is very clear. Preachers, that's, that goes without saying. But often, the purpose of the diaconate isn't clear. And so, um, they are mischaracterized quite often. And their office is misunderstood and, and the purpose of it is misunderstood. Now, I will not say that what I'm about to tell you is the sole purpose of the diaconate. But I will tell you it's certainly um, integral to the office of the diaconate. And I know that because of how this, this, this um, text is, is structured here. So that brings us to the purpose. And I say it's, it's a missional purpose. And the, the diaconate was established to be a, a vanguard of the, the gospel invasion of Gentile territory. That, that's exactly what this is for. The, the diaconate was established to be a vanguard of the gospel invasion of Gentile territory. Look at verse 5. The statement found approval. This is the response of the people of God. It found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and of Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. One of the things that ought to, 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 to grasp um, your attention here is the cultural broadening, which is quite evident here. We have five Greek-speaking names here on this list. Prochor, Nicodemus, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. What does that reflect? Well, that's already reflecting the broadening culture of this Jewish group of believers. What you're seeing in the very application of the, of the process of, of instituting the diaconate in the church is that the church is being led by the providence of God to reflect this expanding sense of what the church should be. Not just a Jewish church, but, but a church of, 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 of the bond and the free, right? Of the Jew and the Gentile, of the male and the female, of the Greek and the barbarian. So the very fact that we're already seeing that the people who are led by the providence of God to be um, set apart to this office are Greek speakers is already signaling to us the cultural expansion that's going on and the broadening scope of the church, which was necessary to expand the church's field of ministry. The other thing that gets us here as we look at the list is the first and the last names here on, on the list of deacons. We have Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We all know what's important about Stephen. He, he was this great martyr for the gospel, right? He's the one that preaches before the Sanhedrin with such boldness they end up stoning him to death. Well, what happened, is, what happened after that? Well, it became uh, the, the spark which, which, uh, which got lit with gasoline and caused the church to, to blow up and expand the borders of, of Jerusalem and Palestine and, and march forward up the, the northern Palestinian coast all the way up into Syria uh, where from Antioch, all of the, the early church planting missions in the history of Christianity were launched, which, which sent the church way out of the Roman Empire. So when you read the name Stephen, you cannot separate him from the context here. 
Stephen becomes the catapult. Uh, he, he becomes the catalyst for the forward expansion of the church from Jerusalem. He kicks off this mass exodus uh, away from Jerusalem and out into the Gentile world. Now, the other thing that's important, he's the first on the list. The other thing that is important is the last man on the list. Nicholas, two things are here. Proselyte from Antioch. Proselyte means he is a converted believer. He didn't grow up in Judaism. He didn't get circumcised on the eighth day. This was a Greek. This was a Gentile. This was a man who came to the faith as a Jew. And then when he heard the proclamation of the gospel, his eyes were illuminated and opened to see that the hope and the promise of Old Testament prophecy, type and shadow, was fulfilled in the cross. And so he's converted and he believes. But he is a proselyte. He is one first that went through Judaism to the cross. And the other thing, he's from where? Well, Antioch, which is the home base for missionary expansion of the church in the first century. The very fact that you're reading that here and by the time you get to Acts chapter 11 and then into 12, and you start to see how this functions and into 13, you realize that, that the, the very providential election of Nicholas to proselyte of Antioch portends something. It's pointing forward to what? It's pointing forward to gospel conquest and expansion. But how do you tie all this uh, to, to this event? That it is the vanguard, the establishment of of the diaconate is the, the vanguard of the forward march of the gospel in, in the conquest of Gentile lands. Well, um, fortunately, my uh, professor of New Testament in seminary, Dr. Johnson, has published some really good work on this. And one of the things that he, he did here is he examines this text in the fullness of the Word of God is, is he noted there's some, some parallels here that are very striking and important. And the first parallel here uh, begins with this word, uh, select, in verse 3. Brethren, select from among yourselves. And one of the things that he noticed is this is not the word that is used in the book of Acts to describe the election of officers in the church. It's not. Throughout the book of Acts, when we're talking about the election of officers, we, we have very predictable terms that are used and this isn't found anywhere in fact this word really has a has a very unique use and the the, the word that is used here is used all the way back in numbers 27 16 and in case you haven't been reading it lately just listen to this in moses appeal to the lord to choose a man to appoint of the congregation who he says, who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that they, the congregational Lord, will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. See, uh, Numbers 27, 16, Moses uses this word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, select. And you see, this is the end of Moses' time as the leader of the people of God. This means that they're in, at the end of the wilderness wanderings. And more specifically, this means that the next leader of the people of God is the general who will lead them in the conquest of the land of Palestine. 
And so here, the same word select is used in both. Select. Then the spiritual qualifications. Notice that they are to be those who are, according to apostolic testimony in verse 3, full of the Spirit. And, and you see that testimony made particularly and specifically of Stephen, who, as we just noted, was the tip of the spear, the, the catalyst for the forward expansion of the gospel out of Jerusalem into Gentile lands. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, similarly, Joshua is qualified to succeed Moses because of this. And uh, we're told that he had the spirit in himself. And then finally, they're both uh, uh, insta- They're both set apart and ordained to office through the, the laying on of hands. And so Dr. Johnson looks at these peculiar details. He ties them together. And here's his comment. Through these points of contact with the story of Joshua's appointment, the reader who knows the Old Testament is alerted to expect the seven, like Joshua, will take the lead in carrying God's dominion into new Gentile territory. You see, the diaconate, the purpose of it was in part missional. The diaconate in part is missional in terms of purpose. And that missional purpose means that they are a part, the diaconate is a part of the, the full ministry of Christ's church in expanding the kingdom of God. Now, you'll remember back in Acts chapter 1 before Jesus ascends into heaven, here's one of the things that he says to his disciples. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. Ten years later, where are they? Well, they're still in Jerusalem. You see, the purpose and the will of Christ was for his church to expand out, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth because he is the Lord all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. The nations are being discipled. But you see, the church doesn't really move until by the providence of God, Christ uses the occasion of the murmuring in the church to raise up an office which what? Is characterized by those who will lead the gospel advance the kingdom of God into Gentile lands. It won't lead. They'll accompany it though. And and it's basically saying this, that the ministry of Christ in terms of taking his gospel forward uh, unto the unbeliever is that it is a ministry of mouth and hand. Christ has ordained that he just doesn't have a speaking church. He does have that. He does have a speaking church where, where the mouth of the minister is consecrated to proclaim the mercies of Christ. But it is a truncated and imbalanced and incomplete picture of Christ's ministry if all the church does is talk. And so then, this institution of the diaconate has this missional purpose to be a part of that vanguard, that advance upon the conquest of the Gentile lands because with this ministry of the word proclaimed is the ministry of mercy practically. 
through hands, through help, through support. And so both of these then go together in a parallel fashion or a coordinated fashion for the upbuilding of Christ's church. Mercy was to be administered not just with words, but with deeds. So when you think this morning upon the diaconate, you begin to try to say, what is this thing all about? One of the things that you're supposed to understand is that it is an adjunct, it is an auxiliary, it is a help to the public ministry of the word. That public ministry of of proclaiming mercy is reinforced and supplemented and, and strengthened with the mercy of practice. The fact that these things seem to fit together now is confirmed by the testimony of verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. It is um, of interest to note that verse 7 begins with the word and. And. It doesn't begin with the word the. It begins with the word and. See, the point of it is for Luke to connect the story of the institution of the diaconate to the substory. Subsequently, what happened? As the word was reinforced and strengthened now, this office of word ministry is reinforced and supplemented now with this office of, of deacon ministry, of, of practical ministry of mercy. And, he says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And many priests became obedient to the faith. We have a picture of a spreading word. We have a picture of arithmetic growth of the church. And we have a picture of something that's quite shocking. Priests. Priests. It's noteworthy that Luke highlights that many of them were priests. At this time, there were thought to be about eighteen to 20,000 priests. It's a lot of priests. Now, I can't say all of those priests came to Christ, but when Luke says a great many of those priests were becoming obedient to the faith, it indicates that the word is starting to spread. But I think it's quite interesting and significant that the testimony of the priests coming to faith is given in conjunction with Luke's testimony about the institution of the diaconate. There seemed to be something about this connection between the ministry of the word proclaiming mercy and the ministry of the diaconate showing mercy which connected something in the heart and the mind of these priests. Imagine your whole life and experiences carving up sacrifices which were all to be types and shadows of gospel mercy in Christ. Your whole life was that. And then comes the cross. Maybe there's confusion, a lack of understanding. But somehow now, with the tying together of the word testimony of mercy, with the practical administration of mercy, these priests are beginning to receive a a confirmed testimony of the gospel of Christ. 
And so Luke says, not inadvertently, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by connecting these things, Luke is testifying to the profound impact that it has upon the watching world that when the church speaks mercy and administers mercy, that people begin to see the fuller picture of Christ's grace. And God uses that to subdue hearts and minds unto himself. This is not the whole of the purpose of the diaconate for sure. I know that. But it is an important part because our Bible tells us so. People of God, just as I very directly addressed the men of this congregation to consider, and I still am, my call to you men is still happening right now. Consider the glory of the call to serve as elders. It is an excellent office with excellent qualities. And, and my call and encouragement to, to think upon those things still hangs uh, in the air in the room today. But alongside of that, as we think about the officers and offices of the church, I challenge the whole of the people of God to think this morning about this excellent office and its excellent ministry and its excellent qualifications. The diaconate is a critical office in the life of the church. Acts 6 confirms it. It settled discord and brought peace and unity and became that a part of which Christ used to build his church. The diaconal office is a serving office. It makes it a great office. Pastors serve, elders serve, deacons serve. It is a mercy ministering office. It is a missional gospel expanding office. It is an office for the spiritually minded believer. And so, as I proclaim this great office and Christ in it and his administration of mercy, in and through it, I ask you this morning, reflect. Think upon your gifts. Do you have gifts of mercy, of kindness, of concern, of Christian love? Do you have any concern to serve people in their practical needs? Then you should think about the office of deacon. Think about your gifts and your Christian experience. Have you been touched with the power of the gospel? And learn compassion. Have you been touched by the power of the gospel and learn compassion? Are you sensing a desire to use your gifts for the building up of Christ's body? Do you have any desire or urge within you to come alongside somebody who is destitute and broken and hurting and to bring them in practical form the love and the mercy of God in Christ? If you say yes to any of those things, then maybe you should consider whether Christ is calling you to serve as a deacon. Think upon it. Pray about it. And if He is calling you, I want to work with you. I want to pray with you. I want to come alongside you. I want to help you make preparation for this office because of its excellence. Because of its of its glory. It, it, it's, it, it may feel oxymoronic to, to call serving glory, but it is. 
It's, it's a great... It's a great grace of God that He takes your hands and uses them with purpose to minister mercy and blessing to those who need it. And so, people of God, we need people here that have God-given gifts and God-given desires to use it, to take up and seize God-given opportunity to bless those who need Christ's help and mercy. And so, as you consider that, I commit you to this last verse in our text. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. God move you to answer his call to service this morning.